Amen. Hey, this morning we're going to be in the book of Genesis, and so if you have a paper copy of the Bible, just open up to the very first book. We're going to look at sections from chapters 1 through 3 this morning, so if you want to begin to tap your way there. So this morning we are beginning a series that will lead us all the way to Easter for the next 10 weeks or so on this road to Easter, and really taking time to examine a number of different scriptures in the Old Testament and looking at them through the lens of Christ and and asking of God, what would you have us to know of Jesus through your word? And revealing that to us, what then would you have us to be and what then would you have us to do? And so as we're kind of thinking about this and heading in this direction, I want to start, and you don't have to turn there, but I want to start in Luke 24. And so it's After the resurrection, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, and these two disciples, he just kind of happens to be among them, and he's sharing with them, and Jesus essentially says, what's the big deal, what's going on? And they look at him like he's a crazy person who has clearly not been a part of any of the things that have taken place in those days. And so Jesus speaks into their ignorance in verse 25 It says, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Essentially saying, this didn't happen by accident. This Jesus who was crucified, he's not been crucified by accident. This was on purpose, and this was revealed and has been clearly shown throughout the scriptures. So it goes on, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now Jesus reveals himself to the disciples, and they they get it in this instant when he reveals himself to him. And look at what they say in verse 32. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Jesus had this keen ability to walk along with these guys and to say, all right, so do you remember uh, when you were a kid and your parents were teaching you this story about David and Goliath? And they're like, yes, we remember that one. It's why we were all big fans of slingshots until we kept breaking all the clay jars and then we had to get rid of them because we couldn't afford to buy them anymore. He's like, all right, well, your story has nothing to do with this story. Let me tell you how I fit into that story. He says, do you remember all the stories about how the temple was put together and all the various measurements and this and that and what? And they're all like, yes, 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 this many cubits and that many cubits. And he says, this is where I am in this story. In all the various ways as Jesus rolled through the scriptures, he's showing them how Jesus wasn't God's plan B, but how Jesus is the story of scripture from creation to recreation when God reforms and refashions a new heaven and a new earth for all of humanity to live and dwell with him for eternity, eternally enjoying God's presence. This is where we're going. This is the story of Scripture. And so it's instructive for us, helpful for us, to make our way through the Old Testament in these ten short weeks that we have together so that we might see Christ revealed in these passages so that we might learn from him and learning from him, apply him richly to our lives. Would you join me once again as we seek the face of God through prayer? Father, as we encounter your word this morning, these are words that many of us know and have encountered so many times, so frequently over the years, and 
And when we encounter passages like this, our temptation is to check out and wait for lunch. And so, God, I pray that your spirit would not allow that in us, but we would approach your word with keen eyes, with open hearts, with humble spirits, ready to see you change our lives. God, the creativity that you brought into creation, you bring anew in us when we approach you, hearts dead, far from you, lost in the dark, and you awaken us, bring us into the light, and make us alive. Would you make that be true of us today? God, would you cause our hearts to beat for it? for you? Would you cause our mouths to sing for you? Would you cause our lives to reflect you? Would you reveal the truth of your word to our hearts and in so doing, would you change who we are forevermore? Father, for those in this room who are far from you, have never submitted themselves to you, we pray that their hearts would be open, that your spirit would do its work. God, for those in this room who know you but are living away from you, I pray that you would draw them back unto yourself, showing them your grace and mercy even in these first couple of chapters of your book. God, would your spirit move freely in this place. God, that you would be exalted not only in our words but also in our hearts and our quiet thoughts. So God, we submit ourselves to you and we pray for the blessings that come from the careful study and application of your word. We submit these things to you. In Christ's name, amen. I mean, as Genesis opens up and Moses begins to write, he really hits us with one line that should just kick us back from the table and make us think, oh my, what just happened? Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created, everybody say, the heavens and the earth. And so from this, we, we see this summary statement that everything that flows from this isn't a part of some natural order. It's not that God said, oh, look, here, I did a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and then boom, from this, we see that every facet of creation is God intimately invested. He's creating everything from the heavens all the way down to the earth. And what we see in the first few verses here in, in Genesis chapter 1 we see the six days of creation spelled out from verse 2 all the way through verse 23. And so we see that, that God spoke into this thing which was formless and void, and he said, let there be light. God separates the sea from the dry land. God separates the land from the heavens. God puts all the fish that terrify me into the sea. God creates all the vegetation on the land. And every time God moved throughout creation and every time he spoke something into existence, he had this way of assessing what he's done. And this is essentially what he said. It is good. There's nothing deficient, there's nothing lacking, lacking in all the various things that he has created. So he moves all the way through the first five days and he says, it is good. But then he moves to create humanity. And something different begins to happen within the creative exercise of God. Look at verse 24. It says, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things in the beats of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So everything God said would happen did happen. So God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then the Lord God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the bird of the air and the livestock over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God 
blessed them. So God entrusts his image, he entrusts his likeness to humanity in a way that nothing else that had been created so far receives. And he extends to that thing which he's created, man and woman, his blessing. And then God gives to them this commission. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every creeping thing that moves over the earth. And the Lord God said in verse 29, Behold, I give you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. So God entrusts himself, he reveals to his creation himself in humanity, and then he says to all humankind, go forth, multiply, subdue. He gives forth this direction for humanity of dominion and dynasty. You are to rule over and you are to spread and cover the earth, revealing God's character everywhere humanity is born. And this is a display of God's goodness. Verse 31 summarily says this, And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it's not just good. He says it is very good. There was evening, there was morning, and the sixth day. We see God reveal himself in the midst of creation. And in creation is this thing which Jesse told us moments ago that should cause us to worship him just as creation is declaring God's praise. And so what purpose, what function does creation serve? Well, Paul gives us an inclination that in chapter 1 in the book of Romans, that creation serves an express purpose. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so the question becomes, what truth are they suppressing? He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. How, verse 20, for by his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have clearly been perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So God is moving through, and we recognize that creation communicates God in a way that nothing else does. Now, how is this so? Well, we see finite man standing before the majestic mountains and looking up and just saying, this is so much greater than I am. We see man looking up at the stars and saying, the universe is so much more expansive and spreading. I have no ability to rightly understand how all of these things came to be. But still, we give ourselves to the quest of knowledge, to the attaining of more and more information. But all of humanity sees, but revealed before them, something beyond them. This is the role of creation for lost humanity, that they would behold it and say, how have these things come to be? But to the Christian, what is the role of this creation narrative? In some sense, what this should do constantly for us is lead us back time and time and time again to wonder and awe. Do you remember just a few short weeks ago when they had the great conjunction and, and everybody walked out and they wanted to see how the planets lined up and the Christmas star and all these various things? And, and lost people and people that knew Jesus went out just to see the thing that wouldn't happen in this way again for a very long time. 
One of my staff members told me that they were there and they went to the sports park. They went to this spot and, and they walked out and they're looking up and they see it off in the distance because they had a compass and they knew which way to look. But they said beside them and behind them and around them, everybody's pointing every which way. And one guy actually was so confused that he's over there and says, look, there it is. And in actuality, he's pointing at a street light. Right? You just want to walk up and be like, man, you need to go see an eye doctor. And, and you have great faith. I mean, that's impressive. People want to make sense of creation. But for the Christian, we recognize the God of creation, and it leads us to be worshipers of him. And it also serves this purpose. It anchors our minds. It anchors our minds in the truths of God's revelation and how he has spun the world into existence, that he's created us male and female. He has not given us a choose-your-own-adventure. And so no matter what our culture and society says and does, we come back to the truth of God's word as revealed by him. We find in creation orderliness. We find in creation majesty. We find in creation God who has anchored us to his word. We find in creation God's character revealed to humanity who so desperately needs him. Six days of creation. And God gives a precious gift to humanity. Not that he needed it, but he recognized we did. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. God recognizes that you and I need rest. You know, not rest in the sense of kind of this kick back and, and, and just veg out on the couch and watch Netflix until it says, are you still watching? And you wake up drool covering your pillow saying, apparently not, next but rest in the sense that we kick back from the industriousness that God has given us and we are impressed with what he has done through us. This is what God did. On the sixth day, God worked all the way through, but on the seventh day, he kicked back and he beheld all of his creation and he invites you and I to do the same. He recognizes that we find our best rest in him, not in exhaustion. So many of us are poor our lives out and we work until we have nothing left and in that moment of emptiness and in that moment of weariness, we collapse on the floor and we call that rest. Rest necessitates that we are able to kick back and assess the things which God has done. Those things that we are able to worship him for, rest finds us on a Saturday or a Sunday or whatever your rhythm is, kicking back and saying, I see that thing which God brought me through on Monday. I see how God sustained me on Tuesday. I see how on Wednesday I was really beginning to feel the weight of the world coming down upon me, but I found refreshing in his word, how God has sustained me throughout. And then each and every day as we go down through there, we find ourselves not kicking back in inactivity and pursuing ease, but finding ourselves worshiping the God who sustained us in the midst of difficulty, the God who gave us energy, the God who gave us creativity, the God who calls us to be workers. This is what the Sabbath is for. 
that we might reflect on the goodness of our God and find ourselves worshiping him who toiled for six days, who rested on the Sabbath, and who entrusts that rest to us. You remember that Jesus got busted time and time again for the Sabbath. He'd go out and heal somebody on the Sabbath, and they'd come up and say, what is wrong with you? You shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be healing on the Sabbath. And his question time and again was, is it right to do wrong or right on the Sabbath? And they'd go away grumbling and thinking, oh, he got us again, Magoo. Right? And so it's this understanding that Jesus perfectly understood the Sabbath. In Mark chapter 2, speaking on the Sabbath and its purpose, He said this in chapter 2 and verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift entrusted to humanity. It's not that God created the Sabbath and said, what in the world am I going to give to you, Sabbath? Perhaps I'll give you a man to enjoy you. No, God has, has given to us this precious gift of rest, of reflection, and of great love for him finding ourselves worshiping God in the Sabbath periods. Now what he does from here is he, chapter 2, gives us an extended review of what creation has looked like for humanity. And so 26 through 27 or 28 in chapter 1 said, God has created men and women in his likeness, male and female, he created them. And then what we see is that chapter 2 begins to take a closer look. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. God forms and fashions the dirt that he made into a vessel, and into this vessel he imparts life. He exhales, and then humanity collectively inhales. Outside of God's investment of himself, there is no life. But God gives to his creation, he gives to humanity, the height of his creation, life, and he sustains them. Look at how he goes on. He says, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant pleasant to the sight and good for food. Every tree that God made was good and pleasant for food. This is important for us to remember. It says, And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and along with it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, it's so incredibly helpful for us to realize and recognize in the midst of this that God did not create the tree of life. And as Adam and Eve are walking around the garden and and, and just kind of chatting it up and whatnot, they're like, Look how beautiful that tree of life is. It is so amazing. And then they walk, and and the light begins to dim, and the crickets begin to come out, and the cockroaches begin to scurry, and they come over, and they hear, and it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and on it are just kind of these worm-infested apples, and they look at it, and they're like, that does not look good. This isn't what it looks like. The text clearly tells us that everything the Lord God made was good, that everything was delightful. So this includes the tree of life, and it includes the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then in the midst of these things, we recognize that God has created all these things, and so he brings them before Adam, and Adam's like, well, that's a 
clearly a lion, and this is clearly a liger, and that's clearly a tiger, and this is clearly a bear cub, and this is... And so he's running down through this list, and then in the midst of these things, God declares it's not good for man to be alone, but none of the things he brought before him were like Adam. None of the things he brought before him were like Adam. So from Adam, God creates something for Adam. And this is what we read in verses 21 through 25. It says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man that had already received the life from God. God made into the woman and he brought her to man and man's jaw hit the ground and he pulls it back up and he rolls his tongue back in his mouth and says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then Moses gives us the words whereby we say over and over again in marriage ceremonies, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were naked and unashamed. Think of all that God has done. God spoke into the darkness and he separated it and he gave light and darkness. He took the earth and from it, he covered it. He covered it with vegetation. He covered the waters with all the things that swim in the sea. He covered the land with all the things that move over the land. He took a piece of his dust. He formed and fashioned it. He breathed into it. Humanity took breath. He wanted Adam to have someone like him but different from him. So he took from Adam a rib and he gave to Adam Eve. They had everything. They had the ability for sustaining life and the tree of life. They had worship uninterrupted with God. They enjoyed his presence. They had no foes that they knew of. They had no ailments. They had no shortcomings. They enjoyed perfect, uninterrupted peace. But then the enemies introduced. Satan, who had fallen from heaven took the form of a serpent and he approaches this first couple. And he seeks to confuse them. He seeks to introduce to them an understanding that somehow this perfection isn't quite enough. That somehow God had entered into a sleight of hand that had led them to believe that all that they were experiencing was not good enough. See, he approaches the woman in chapter 3. And he asked her, he said, did God not actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Just a question. He's just trying to probe at what she knows. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit, the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And whether she misunderstood or she's merely summarizing, this is not exactly what the Lord God had said. And the serpent seizes upon that. But the serpent said to the woman, you, you will not surely die. It's a direct contradiction of what God had said. He says, listen, you are missing out big time. You touch this thing, you eat of this thing, you dance around it in the pale moonlight, ain't nothing going to happen to you. You will not surely die. God's been keeping something from you. 
Verse 5, he says, But the Lord God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be, everybody say, opened. And you will be like God. What is the promise that he gives to her in that? The promise that he gives to her in that their eyes will be opened, that they will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is a promise of divinity. He says, listen, you may have his image and you may have his likeness, but he's distinctly different from you. And if you want to change that, if you want to upset the apple cart, if you want to return to having parity and equality with God, you need to eat that so you can be like him. He introduces into perfection, he introduces into this loving first couple an idea that life was not as good as they were led to believe that it is. Somewhere, the other side of the garden rested knowledge held back from them that was keeping them from fully enjoying all the things that were by rights theirs. This completely upsets the woman. And Adam is apparently with her, but often some of their daydreaming land thinking, I should have named the lion something better. It says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. First Timothy 2 tells us that Eve was deceived. It didn't take the fancy words and the arguments to win Adam over. He gladly took the thing he was given, and he ate. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were open, and they knew... That they were naked. And so recognizing their shame revealed that they had no ability to hide themselves before God. They sewed fig leaves together and they made for themselves loincloths. And then they began to hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And so what did Adam and Eve do? It says they hid themselves from God. They sought to obscure themselves from his sight. So God's walking along and they hear him and they skedaddle. Verses 9 through 11 says that in the, essentially in the midst of their sin, they seek to hide themselves because now they know evil. There's no knowledge which is now restricted from them. They know evil. And God calls out and he says, Adam, where are you? And Adam's response essentially is, uh, I don't have anything appropriate on right now. Could, if you could just... God asked a rhetorical question of who told you you were naked, knowing that the only reason they knew this is because they had eaten from the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He inquires about it. He asked them the question about whether or not they had eaten from it, why they had eaten from it. Look at what the man does. He finds two sources of blame. You read this text quickly, and I think you walk away thinking that only the woman is who he blames, but if you read it carefully, look what he says. The woman whom you gave me. God, you gave me this woman. Your gift was not good. Your gift led me to disobey. She's bad, and so are you. She led me to error. But the fault begins with you, who took her from me, presented her before me. 
God, you and the woman share the blame. She gave me the fruit and I ate. Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman looks around for the serpent and she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Nobody wants to take responsibility. Nobody wants to shoulder the blame. Now from this failure in the first couple, what the text begins to reveal to us in verse 14 is that God turns to the serpent and he curses the serpent. And in 16 and following, God turns to the woman and he says, I'll greatly increase the pain for you in childbearing. God turns to the man and he says, if you want to eat, it's going to be by toil and God curses work. He says, you're going to sweat, you're going to toil, and always the ground is going to rebel against you. You're going to have thistles and thorns all the days of your life, and this is how it's going to be. But I want us to see two things here at the end. Adam and Eve rebelled. It wasn't enough to them to live in harmony and live in the midst of this relationship with the Lord. What they wanted was to be like God. They wanted divinity. And even in the midst of the cursings, God goes to them and he gives to them this promise which would be for all humanity in chapter 3 and verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and gives to them this promise which would be realized in Christ. He says, he will bruise or crush your head and you will strike his heel. The secret, the promise, the hope for humanity would always rest in the seed of the woman. The woman who's deceived, the one at whose feet Adam laid blame, would be the carrier for the deliverer. Jesus is the one who would ultimately crush the head of Satan by overcoming sin and death. Satan would think that he won there in the garden as the disciples would stay awake. Satan would think that he won there in the court of the high priest as Jesus was mocked as he was betrayed by his people. Satan would think that he had won as Pilate had him again beaten, as he had him mocked, as he had him dragged across, as he had him crucified. And Satan would think that he had won when Jesus expelled his breath and said, it is finished. But he clearly lost. In the resurrection, Jesus defeats sin and death. And he solidly crushes the head of the serpent. So we see hope even in the midst of cursing. And then as God expelled Adam and Eve from the garden, as he sent them out, he recognized that their paltry attempts to clothe themselves would be woefully inadequate. So we see the first sacrifice. God takes an animal and he slaughters it. And from this sacrifice to cover their sins, Jesus steps into the same realm as God prefigures Jesus by covering Adam and Eve with the skin of this animal. So too we see in Jesus who has covered us and covered over our sin with himself. And we see this beautiful picture of creation. 
chapter 1, which calls us to be worshipers. Calls the lost people around us to recognize their finite ability to be master over all that they survey. Chapter 2 calls us to rest in Christ. We recognize that God gives us this precious, holy gift of the Sabbath so that we might worship Him in the midst of it. And then in, in, in Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 11 and verses 28 through 30, this is what we read about this Christ. He himself will give us rest. He says, come to me all who are carried over with labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Man, there are some of us who the message we need to take away from this is that we've been carrying our own burdens too long. God has not created you to be able to sustain your strength and energy to exist on your own and to carry all these things unaided. He invites you in the person of Jesus to come and find rest. To the lost person, he says, come and receive forgiveness and, and find rest in me. To the Christian, he tells us over and over and over again as we seek to go out and toil on our own and in our own strength, find rest in me. Listen. There's no rest which will sustain you long. The only rest which is enduring, the only rest that lasts, the only rest that satisfies is found in Christ. We need him. And he is faithful and good to carry us through this life and to usher us into his rest that will finally be fully enjoyed for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. In the picture of Eve, we see what she did. And she looked at the tree, she saw it. She saw the fruit on it was good for making one wise, and so she took it, and she gave it to her husband. They both ate, and all of humanity dies in sin. And the sting and the stain of sin would rest across humanity because she saw, she took, she gave, and they ate. But what we see in the person of Jesus, Jesus seeing before him the cross, he sees the suffering, he sees the pain, he sees the anguish, he sees the rejection. Seeing the cross, Jesus didn't spurn it and kick it away. Seeing the cross, Jesus took upon himself our sin. And he gave up his life. That in his death, we might all live. And this is what he calls us to. The reception of his life on the basis that Jesus saw the cross, took our sin on himself and gave his life. He calls us to experience life. And he calls us as Christians to enjoy that life from the place of rest, worshiping him forevermore. And would you pray with me as we ask God's blessings upon his word? God, we recognize in this place of perfection in the garden, Adam and Eve rebelled against you.
They surrendered a victory to the enemy. And then in so doing, all of humanity fell with Adam. God, we have your spirit to lead and to guide us. And repeatedly we hear the call of the enemy. You're sufficient for these things. You can do this on your own. Don't let others around you know your sin. All seeking to keep us entrapped in our sin. Striving in our failed, frail goodness. So God, I pray that in your son Jesus that we would find his open arms, a ready invitation to receive us, to cover all of our failings again and again, that we would not believe the lie of self-sufficiency. That somehow you're holding something better from us. So God, we also pray for the lost person who's in here and who's hearing this right now. God, that they would see in your son Jesus, in his gracious invitation to salvation, an invitation to rest, an invitation to be forgiven, an invitation to be made whole. So God, would you stir in our hearts, would you lead us in paths of righteousness, and would you guide us as we continue to worship you in song. We submit these things to you in Christ's name, amen.